<clears throat> Amen. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Taylor. Appreciate you guys. Good morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And today we are going to start um, a mini-series. So you're kind of familiar with mini-series on TV. This is a mini-series in church. So it's two weeks, this week and next week. Really, this is one sermon that was too long, that had to be broken up into two weeks. Nobody wants to listen to me talk for an hour, not even me. And so we're going to break this up into two weeks. And today and next week, we're going to talk about doubt. And we're going to talk about belief. And we're going to talk about how those things connect to and relate to our faith in Jesus and our faith in one another and our faith in the world. Um, because if you haven't noticed, there's a lot of doubt in the world today. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of anxiety that's going around. And I'm not even talking about religious belief. There's a lot of struggle around what we believe in general, in, in every aspect of life. And obviously, this maybe is most clear in our political world, where there's a lot of doubts, a lot of uncertainties, a lot of different beliefs about what the best way forward for our country is, and who the best people are to lead us. And while you would think, listening to the media, it's this nice 50-50 split, and you know everybody's on one side or the other, it's way more complex than that in real life, isn't it? It's way more complex, and there's way more nuance. There's disagreement and doubt and disbelief within both sides, if you will. I mean, I can't remember, in the last two elections, we've elected people from two different parties, and I can't remember the phrase, well, I just went with the lesser of two evils, more than I have in the last two election cycles. And then there's also d doubt and uncertainty around the very nature of our country, right? Some of the founding stories, the way we think about ourselves in the world, uh, there's a lot of questions. Are, are we, are we the, the country that we heard about growing up in history class? Uh, are we a country that's for e equality and opportunity for all, all people, built on the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Or are we a nation that's founded on the exploitation and marginalization of minority people and native people, a morally bankrupt system that just needs to be torn down, ripped apart, and started over? A lot of disbelief, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt around that. And then there's our response to the pandemic. Clearly no universal agreement or belief around that either. I mean, there's been a lot of questions from the beginning of this thing about what the right way to respond has been and what it should be. Should, should we have been more aggressive from the beginning? Should we have taken more strong steps? Were we right to shut down the economy? Were we right to shut down our schools? Now that we have effective vaccines, should businesses and should the government allow, be allowed to mandate those? What's the, what's the tension? How, how do we think about personal freedom and personal responsibility? A lot of questions, a lot of doubts. So on a lot of fronts, it just feels like things are being pulled apart, right? Like kind of unraveling a little bit. Things that we've taken for granted, beliefs, ideas, institutions that were just unexamined. We just lived life for a really long time. I mean, for a long portion of my life, a lot of these things were just never questioned and they're coming to the surface and they're being questioned and there's a lot of deconstruction that's happening, a lot of unraveling around all of the beliefs, the institutions and the systems, things like government, our legal system, medicine, public health, free market economy, all of those have been shaken as doubts and uncertainty 
has undermined public trust in those basic fundamental public institutions. And at times, watching these un things unfold, I feel a little bit like watching it out there, like on TV or on social media, and it feels very distant and feels almost philosophical or theoretical, like watching a car crash that you kind of can't turn away from. It's really horrible, and it's going on, but it doesn't seem that personal. But like you, I'm sure, inevitably it's landed in my personal life, and it's probably landed in your personal life. Over time, all of that uncertainty, that doubt, all that disagreement, it's landed in our lives in a lot of different personal ways. For me, the most important and challenging of these has been the way that this unraveling, this deconstruction, this doubt has found its way into people's lives as it relates to their faith in God and their trust in the institution of the church. Yes, there are a lot of questions and uncertainties about the nature of faith, <clears throat> belief in God, and a lot of questions and doubts about the church these days. And these are not problems or questions or doubts that are out there. They're right here. They're in this room this morning. Because I've talked to people over the last year, people who have been rocked by this pandemic to their core, socially, emotionally, economically, months of stress, of isolation, of disconnection, uncertainty, and anxiety. They've all taken their toll on all of us in a lot of different ways. And I've talked to several people who've shared that they just feel like they don't know where God is in the middle of all that for them. He feels distant. He feels far away. And they felt disconnected in the midst of all that from our church as well. And they've questioned whether this is really a community of faith that cares for them or not. I've talked to a lot, mostly younger people who've had a really difficult time with relationships in their family, their parents or their grandparents, and trying to understand this entanglement that has happened between Christian faith and political conviction. Some people I know have shared that they feel like they've had to break relationships for their own personal health with people closest to them and their family. I think the Capitol, broke, the Capitol riot broke this open. It caused a lot of people to doubt the faith that they had received from people that they had trusted, people in their family, pastors, leaders, people that, that just gave them things to believe in that they hadn't really taken for granted. And they were, they're, they're asking, if that's Christianity, do I really want to have anything to do with that? And for others, I think doubts crept in through the relational disconnection of the pandemic. I mean, for almost a year, we, we've, we've been disconnected, we've been here, we've been back, we've been hybrid. Some people are still watching online. We appreciate you hanging in with us. But it's created this disconnection. And I honestly think for a lot of people, they got their Sundays back and they're not really sure that they miss church all that much. They're doubting and wondering whether or not it's worth it to even come back. At a personal level, this has been really hard for me and I think for all of us here at New Denver to navigate through. It's hard to see and hear about the pain and difficulty and challenges that people have faced in this last year. This, this unraveling that's just happening in our culture and our society, it's, it's taking its toll on us as a community of faith. It's hard to listen to people tell these stories of pain and loss and doubt and uncertainty and feel their pain. 
But I'm also really hopeful. I'm really hopeful because, as you're going to see, I have a different way of thinking about all of these things that are going on, all of these doubts, all of these uncertainties, even the doubts and uncertainties about God and about faith and about the church than I think a lot of people do. There's a lot of hand-wringing right now. There's a lot of anxiety in church leaders. And I, for one, I think the church of Jesus Christ is just fine and is going to be just fine. So today I want to talk about why I believe that, part of why I believe that, and why I think doubt is so important, uncertainty, and moving through it is so important, what the critical role that doubt plays in constructing our beliefs and our faith. I want to talk about how we can go through deconstruction, we can disbelieve things, and still hold on to our faith. We don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater as it says, as the saying goes. So to do that, I need to give you a little bit of context and a little bit of an understanding for the process of doubt and how it fits into a healthy life of faith. And to do that, I'm going to tell you a story, a story that comes from the New Testament, a story from the life of Jesus. If you have your Bibles or if you want to follow along with the story, we're going to be in the book of John chapter 20. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, if the Bible's new to you, that, that's fine. John is a book in the, the New Testament, which is, begins with the story of Jesus. And there's four accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' life. Um, John is one of them. John, the man for whom the, bu- the book is, is named, is the author. He was one of Jesus' closest associates, one of his first followers. And John writes this book as an eyewitness to the things that he describes. And it's been faithfully passed us through the years. And, and we're so lucky to have this because it's one of the most unique books, one of the most unique accounts of Jesus's life. And we're picking up the story, where we're picking up in the story today is actually the very first Easter Sunday. So on Thursday night, Jesus was dining with his friends. He leaves. He's arrested because there was a plot to arrest him. There was a hasty trial in which he is brought before both Jewish and Roman leaders. The the Jewish leaders had limited political power. Rome was the occupying force that controlled uh, this whole area. It was a province of the Roman Empire. And so they bring him to the the governor, Pontius Pilate, who who tries to let him go, but the mob is is angrily calling for Jesus' life. And so Pontius Pilate consents, and Jesus is found guilty of of, of, of inciting a riot, and he's executed. The most public and, and humiliating way that the Romans had discovered uh, to execute someone, and they'd tried a lot, they were really good at it, was crucifixion. And this is what Jesus went through. And so he dies on Friday afternoon. Hastily, his, his followers put him in a, in a grave, just a cleft in a rock, and they put a rock in front of the grave, and they leave because Saturday is the Sabbath, and by Jewish law, they're not supposed to do any work. They can't even properly bury their friend. And so grief-stricken, they lay him in the tomb, and they leave him there until Sunday morning. We're picking up the story on Sunday morning when some of Jesus' followers have gone to the tomb to try and finish burying him and to mourn the loss of their friend. They were confused. They were uncertain. They had tons of doubt at this point about what was real, about what they could believe, and what their life was going to look like the way forward. Everything in their world had been turned upside down at this point. And they get to the tomb, and they find the rock had been rolled away, and the grave is empty. 
And I think their first thought is someone has come and stolen his body. Insult to injury, in addition to being executed so publicly and so humiliatingly, now they've stolen his body. And so two of his followers who are there go back to tell the other disciples that, that the body's gone and they don't know what's going on. And one woman stays behind, John tells us, a woman named Mary, and she's there, she's outside the tomb, and she's just crying. And someone walks up to him, and she thinks it's the gardener, the person who tends this cemetery, I guess. And he asks her, why are you crying? And, and she tells him that they've taken his body. And he says, Mary, he says her name, and suddenly it's like she, she realizes this is Jesus. He's alive. And he's standing right in front of her. And so we pick up the story that evening. Later that evening, John chapter 20, verse 9 says this. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Skipping down a little bit, skipping down a few verses Verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now let me stop right here, because in this story about Thomas's doubt, what John is actually giving us is a perfect picture of how we go through our own doubt and how we process our own doubt. So I want to point out what's going on in the story here. So Thomas's story begins with Jesus, begins way before this, right? Like he's been following Jesus for three years. For three years, he's been following Jesus. He's been watching what Jesus does. He's been listening to what Jesus says. And he's developed a lot of beliefs, about Jesus. And at the core of that belief, you, you might say there's a core belief in that. And that core belief that had been developed was that Jesus was the promised Messiah. You see, the, in the Old Testament, the, the prophets had said there is going to be one who comes. That although Israel had been unfaithful, had been exiled, had lost their kingdom, had been subject to lots of different other kingdoms, and now they were subject to the Romans. That they, one day there was a king who was going to come, who was going to lead them back to previous greatness, lead them back to being faithful to God, and lead them back to being an independent nation again. And you might say that Thomas's core belief, and a lot of the disciples' core belief, was that Jesus was this Messiah. He was the one they had been waiting for. They'd seen him do these miraculous things. They'd heard the teaching, the insight that he had, the way that he had a connection to God that no one else could understand. That was part of his core belief about Jesus. The problem with that is when Jesus died, all of that went away. Because you can't be king when you're dead. Thomas's faith rested on this belief about who he believed Jesus to be. That Jesus was the king that was promised and was going to lead Israel back to greatness. When Jesus died, all that went away. So this is it. Thomas is done. He's out. He's not there with the disciples when Jesus shows up. Why would he be? That's dangerous. They've just killed this man that, that they've all been following. Why would he want to be around the associates? That's putting his own life in danger. He's not hanging around them 
anymore. So when the other disciples finally track him down and say, we've seen Jesus, he's alive. He's like, get out of my face with that. You know what? Unless don't try to bring some other guy and say, oh, he's been reincarnated. This is the new Jesus. Don't bring that to me. People don't die and come back to life. Jesus says, unless I see him and I put my fingers in the holes in his hands where they put the nails, unless I see the gash in his side from where I saw a soldier stab a spear into his side on the cross to make sure he was dead, I don't want to have anything to do with what you're talking about. Thomas is out. So look what happens next. A week later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So a, couple, a, lot, a lot going on here. A couple of observations. First of all, it's a week later. Thomas sits in that doubt, that uncertainty, the disbelief in Jesus, the disbelief in God for a week. I mean, Jesus is moving around. He's, he's meeting with other people. He's encountering. We don't know what he's doing during this time, but he certainly could have found Thomas and straightened all this out. But he lets Thomas sit in this doubt and this uncertainty for a week. And we don't know what happens. We don't know if the if, he, if things have just cooled off and he decides to come back and hang out with his guys again, hang out with the fellas, back with the disciples, but he's back with them, right? And, and they're sitting in this room, the door is locked, and Jesus appears. This is the second time that Jesus does this weird, like, appearing in the room through closed doors, through walls, um, which tells us, like, his resurrected body could do things, his his non-resurrected body didn't. That's a sermon for a different day. But there's, there's weirdness going on. And what's the first thing that he says? Again, both instances, John says the first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Peace be... Because I think this scared the crud out of them. I think they were scared to death. Which, why wouldn't they be, right? The person that they knew to be dead is now alive and standing in front of them. And in this encounter, Jesus goes right to Thomas. And what, he said, what does he say? All right, Thomas, this is what you said you needed. Here I am. Here are the holes. Here are the holes. Here's the gash. It's healing up a little bit, but here it is. Now, do you believe? Look what, look what Jesus says. He says, stop doubting and believe. You have new evidence. You have new information. Start believing. But this is what's interesting is Thomas does believe, but he doesn't go back. He doesn't say, my king. He doesn't say, my teacher. What does he say? My Lord and my God. This is new. Thomas has new belief. It's not the same as the old belief. He used to believe some things about Jesus. The crucifixion changed all that. He stopped believing that that was real. But seeing the risen, the resurrected Jesus created new belief for him. It's not that the old belief was wrong. I mean, Jesus is still the Messiah. 
It's just that he's so much more than that. It's not that his belief was wrong, it just wasn't right enough. This is a good and necessary cycle of doubt for Thomas to go through. He had to move from what he used to believe about Jesus and about how the the crucifixion, how his death changed that and how the resurrection changed his belief about who Jesus was. And this cycle from faith to doubt to disbelief to new belief is a good and a necessary part of a healthy and growing faith. Doubt doesn't have to destroy your faith. It actually can make your faith stronger, better. It can cleanse. It can wipe away. It can, it can take away the things that were wrong and untrue that you never should have been believing in in the first place. So how do we go through this process? How do we engage in this process for ourselves? How do we take what, what Thomas experienced and how do we apply that to our own lives? Well, for starters, I think we have to be willing to walk through the process of doubt. We need to be able to acknowledge there are things that we doubt. There are questions we have about our beliefs. There are things that we are uncertain about. There are things that we have maybe believed for a long time that we're holding onto, that we're having a harder and a harder time holding onto, that's creating tension and doubt and uncertainty for us. You see, all of us began our journeys of faith at some point in the past. And all of us were given a a certain set of beliefs, a certain set of things about who God was and who Jesus is and what the Bible is about and how we read it and how we understand it. How do we make sense of it in the world? We were all given that and we just received it and we accepted it. Here's the challenge. We were given it by flawed, imperfect people who were still going through this process on their own, still figuring out what they believe, still doubting and growing in their own faith. And there's a lot of things that we've received that we need to re-examine. A lot of things that maybe we, we brought with us from childhood. It came from our parents or our grandparents or, or pastors or teachers or people who were youth group leaders in our church growing up. We need to re-examine that with adult eyes. You know, for me, this process began um, when I was growing up. I grew up going to a very conservative, very fundamentalist sort of church, First Baptist Church of Madison, Mississippi. Um, I was 12 years old when I first was introduced to the story of Jesus and what it meant for me that there was forgiveness in Jesus' death and in his resurrection, and there was life available to me and that I could accept that. And and looking back, I'm so grateful for being introduced to Jesus in that place. That that has formed the foundation of my faith through a lot of years of doubt and uncertainty and walking away from the church and being out of the church for about a decade of my life. But there's a lot of other things that as I came back to faith and began sorting through the beliefs of my childhood, I realized I needed to let go of, that I needed to unlearn, that I needed to disbelieve. I had to unlearn that the role and responsibility of women should be limited based on their gender, that they have certain roles at home and in the church and in the community, and they're supposed to stay in that lane. I had to unlearn that. That was given to me. I had to unlearn and disbelieve that science and faith are not compatible. That if you come to a contradiction about science and something you read in the Bible, that you should elevate 
what the Bible says over what science tells you, even though reading an ancient book and taking the cosmology, the cosmology, the way that ancient people saw the world and taking that as scientific fact is, is both bad science and bad biblical exegesis. I had to unlearn that we could talk about the equality of all people and how we were all created equally in God's eyes and then walk out of the church and discriminate against people based on the color of their skin. I had to unlearn that. And thankfully, I was able to unlearn that you can actually drink a beer, watch a secular movie or listen to secular music um, and go to Disney World and your, your soul is not morally compromised. Like you can actually be okay with God and do all of those things. Those are things that I learned growing up. You can't do any of those things and be okay with God. And thankfully, I, I went through that process. I went through that process of tearing down, deconstructing, re-examining, and then rebuilding my faith. Doubting and disbelieving things that you can't hold on to anymore or that you can't believe doesn't mean that you have to chuck your faith out the window. For some of you, it's time to be honest and re-examine your faith in the light of adult, an adult lens. But here's the thing. Here's the caution. Please don't do that alone. Please don't do that on your own. One of the biggest forces that is driving the unraveling that's happening in our culture and our society today is we're being told that truth is something that you find within yourself. Find your own truth. Live your own truth. We're told these things over and over and over again, and they're not true. Yes, truth is difficult to ascertain. Yes, we all perceive it in limited fashion. Yes, we all have limited perspectives. We have biases. But that doesn't mean that our truth is our truth and that that's all that we should live by. No, we should all be contending for capital T truth, that there is thing, there are things in the world that are real, that are true, that are beautiful, and that we should pursue. And we need other people to help us go through the process of sorting through and discerning. Because here's the thing about you and about me, we are so able to self-deceive ourselves. We are so e able to create beliefs that simply prop up our own ego, that make us feel better about ourselves and aren't really true. We need one another. We, we need trusted guides. We need to be able to look back on 2,000 years of history of people who've, who've tried to figure out what does it look like to follow the way of Jesus we need to look back and learn from the writers of Scripture, from the church fathers. We need to learn from, from, from great writers in history like C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa and all these people who've lived their faiths out in very real ways. We need to look to pastors and to mentors and people who are older than us in the faith. And we need people in community who we can walk through that uncertainty and doubt and and certainly empathize with one another and the, the tensions that we hold, but find a new faith together, letting go of the things that we need to let go of and sorting through and sifting and finding what's, what's real and what's true and what's beautiful that we discern together. And I long for New Denver Church to be that, that kind of community. For a lot of us, I think it already is, but I still think we have room to grow in this area.
I'm going to end with a little analogy and then we'll, we'll wrap up. In 2019, about six months before the pandemic started, uh, my wife and I decided that it was time to renovate our kitchen. So here's a picture of what our kitchen looked like before. So as you can see, um, uh, so our house was built in 1919. Um, so it's an old bungalow in Wash Park. Uh, best guess was that that update, most of that update happened somewhere in the 19. 50s or 1940s. So uh, that range there is a roper, which was built in the 1940s. I call it the Viking of the 1940s. It was pretty sweet. Um, we lived in this kitchen and used this kitchen for 10 years. It was great. It served us well. And then there was a point at which we just realized that it, it was time. You know, it was time. Really, my wife was the one who was like, it's time. It is really, really time for a change. And the first step in the process of getting a new kitchen was demolition, was deconstruction. We needed to tear it all out. Now, I don't know very much about construction. I cannot build anything. I've just given that up. That is not a skill. I'm good at other things. I'm not good at that. Um, but I could tear stuff down. I mean, I could demolish things. But I know enough about demolition to know that there are things like load-bearing walls and that there are, there are things like ceiling supports that if you just knock those out, bad things could happen to your house. So I needed to seek some help in demolition. And so we ripped it all out. Got a picture of what that looks like too. So that's what it looked like when the demolition was done. So what do you think Kate would have said if I was like, you know what? I, I think we're good. I mean, I think this is, we could just stop here. You know, we could just stop and live with this. I think, that, you know, we got a lot of that old stuff cleaned out. Let's just stop here after deconstruction. That's ridiculous, right? Nobody would stop in the middle of a project. And yet that is exactly what is happening in our culture and society right now. People are so eager to tear it all down with absolutely no conception about how to build something back that's better or more lasting from political institutions and social institutions, even to the church. They're just ready to throw it all out and tear it all down. It's easy to deconstruct. It's easy to tear things down if you don't care about what's left. But the problem is you can't live in this. You can't live in the wreckage. And that's exactly what a lot of people are doing. They've torn it all down. They've thrown it all out. They have no plan for what it looks like to rebuild something better, something more lasting. And inevitably, what, what happens is when you stay in that place, you don't really stay there. There's no neutral when it comes to your belief, your beliefs, your core beliefs about the world. Something will emerge. And what happens is if you don't intentionally construct something, you're just going to receive whatever the world gives you. It'd be like us bringing in like a camp stove and, a, you know, some boxes and a table, like just, you know, because people were coming over and we needed to have a kitchen. You end up with this thrown together, not really thought through really ugly kind of way of operating in the world. And yet that, I think, is what's happening and what can happen if you go through deconstruction and you don't think about what it looks like to rebuild or reconstruct. Next week, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to talk about that reconstruction process. What it, does it look like to rebuild after deconstruction? And so I hope you'll be back for that. But for today, I just want to encourage you that it is possible to go through deconstruction and demolition of your beliefs and faith, to let go of things that need to be let go of. And there's something better, something more lasting, something more enduring, something more beautiful 
on the other side. And I know you're curious, so there's the before and after. There's what our new kitchen looks like, and it's so much better. But if you look at it, it's the same. It's, it's the same, and yet it's so different. We inhabit that space so differently. It's changed the way that we inhabit our house. We didn't get rid of the kitchen. We didn't throw it out. We just built something better. And by we, I mean really skilled construction people. (laughs) Our faith can be so much better than holding on to the doubt and the disbelief and just feeling like we have to grit it through and ignore that, just stuff those doubts and those disbeliefs down. It can be so much better. Doesn't happen without time, doesn't happen without effort, and doesn't happen without some pain. But it is possible. So as we close today, let's pray that God would help us to be honest and courageous and face the doubts and the uncertainty that we have with him and with one another. Let's pray. God, we we just want to declare and cling to the reality that we have nothing to fear. In you, we have nothing to fear. That your love for us is not predicated on getting it right. It's not predicated on having perfect beliefs or perfect theology or knowing everything about the Bible. Your love for us is, is, is one way. It's your disposition towards your creation, to your created. You love us because that's who you are. And so, Lord, give us courage in this process to face honestly the doubts, the disbelief, the uncertainty about things that we've believed maybe for most of our lives. And God, give us the courage and the vulnerability to share those things honestly with other people and to begin the conversation of what does it look like to build a more robust, a more lasting, a more honest and true faith. And yeah, sure, we're going to have to tear some of those things down again in the future, but again, your love for us isn't predicated on getting it right. But you call us, Lord, to a faith that continues seeking understanding. So God, give us the courage, give us the clarity, and help us to take those steps. We pray these things through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.